Hello, my name is Anthony. You are listening to the Ton of Questions podcast. The goal here is to answer questions for those who are curious and to spark curiosity in the minds of those who are not, who may be listening. Have you got a question? Let me know. Let's get started. Nuclear power. Some love it, some despise it, but no matter which camp you reside, it is here to stay, and it is productive, and it can be destructive. Welcome to the Ton of Questions podcast. This is episode eight. I am Anthony, and I will be your host today. We're going to have a fast-paced, high-altitude discussion on nuclear power. The questions that we posed at the beginning of our previous episode, episode seven, the first in the series, were as follows. Question one. When I think about nuclear power, the first question that comes to mind is, how'd they figure all that stuff out? I mean, we're talking about things that are so small and we weren't even sure what, if anything, that small existed. Question number two. Have you ever thought about how it is that nuclear power can be both wonderfully productive as well as mind-bogglingly destructive? Question number three. What is it that makes the difference between a nuclear power plant that will produce astronomical amounts of electricity for the grid without polluting the atmosphere and a nuclear bomb that is capable of mass destruction? And question number four, can a commercial nuclear power plant that generates electricity explode into a mushroom cloud and devastate an entire state like a nuclear weapon could? If you have any of those questions or any other questions about nuclear power for that matter, well then you've come to the right place. At the start of the series on nuclear power, I told you that I'd answer all of those questions. And after a full episode, I haven't actually even answered one of them. What we have done, however, is to lay a good foundation of understanding of what an atom is, how it's constructed, what holds it together, what tries to break it apart, what an isotope is and why it matters. We discussed the difference between chemical and physical properties and that those are determined by the number of protons within the nucleus and electrons on the outside of the nucleus and the nuclear properties of an atom being based on the combination of protons and neutrons within the nucleus. I'm going to repeat the disclaimer that I made in episode 7 because it still applies here. Here's a disclaimer. We are not nuclear physicists writing a scientific research paper here. We're just talking at a level of human curiosity, seeking a basic understanding about what nuclear power is and is not. So the details I'm going to share here may at times be a bit simplified. I may explain certain things that are correct at a conceptual level, but be lacking greatly at a technical level. And the purpose of this is to provide a big picture understanding rather than technical precision. We talked about four fundamental forces in the universe. Gravitational force, electromagnetic force, the weak nuclear force, and the strong nuclear force. We also talked about how the weak nuclear force baffled me when I was in school, but that's an aside. We talked about the role of each of these forces and what that role does in terms of the construction and stability or instability of an atom. I introduced the term isotope, that being 
we can have two atoms of an element, each with a different number of neutrons in the nucleus. In that case, we would have two atoms with the same chemical and physical properties. However, the nuclear characteristics or the properties of the two atoms at the nucleus level would be different. We dug into what the strong nuclear force is, that strong iron grip, but only over a short distance. That it's the strongest known force in the universe. And again, that it has a very, very short range, like the diameter of a proton. And we talked about the diameter of a proton is one twenty-five billionth of the diameter of a human hair. Or you could say it the other way around is I could take 25 billion protons, put them side by side, and we'd be at about the diameter of a human hair. We talked about how the strong nuclear force overcomes the repulsion that comes from the electromagnetic force of two like charged particles, in this case protons. We talked about an atom giving off excess energy in the form of radiation in order to get down to its ground state. And then we talked briefly about what half-life is. Now, I'd really enjoy getting into what radiation is, but that's a whole separate discussion. Maybe that'll be another two or three or 12-episode series. Anyway, now it is time to discuss what nuclear power is all about. Keep in mind that the concepts of what we covered in our previous episode were unknown to the pioneers of the nuclear age. Martin Klaproth, a German chemist, discovered uranium in 1789. Wilhelm Rankin discovered ionizing radiation in 1895. Maybe you weren't aware that the curious people started down this road quite a long time ago. Henry Becquerel, he found that pitchblende, which is an ore that contains radium and uranium, caused his photographic plates to darken, and he figured out that the pitchblende was emitting radiation. In 1902, Ernest Rutherford determined that when a material emitted alpha and beta radiation, a subject I haven't covered, like I mentioned, that it turned into a different element. In 1919, Rutherford fired an alpha particle into nitrogen gas and found that in doing so, he created oxygen. Let's take a minute to talk about that one. Talking in generalities, of course, here. Remember that we said the number of protons determines the element. Nitrogen has seven protons. Oxygen has eight protons. The interaction that Rutherford created caused the nucleus of the nitrogen atom to absorb a proton. This then turned that nitrogen atom into an oxygen atom because the nucleus now has an additional proton. In 1932, a fellow by the name of James Chadwick discovered the neutron, and John Douglas Cockroft and Ernest Thomas Sinton Walton artificially accelerated protons and bombarded other atoms to cause transformation. In 1934, Irene Curie and her husband Frederick Joliet found that bombarding atoms with protons, that transformations occurred and new, air quotes, radionuclides were formed. I didn't lay this on you in the first episode of the series, but we did talk about what an isotope is. 
Well, you could say that a nuclide is the same thing as an isotope that is at a concept level correct. But if we got into it at a technical level, there is in fact a difference, but I'm going to skip the discussion on their differences. A quote, radionuclide, unquote, is a nuclide that is radioactive. In other words, it has excess energy and it's trying to shed that excess energy in the form of radiation. Side note, in all of my many years in this field, I have to admit, I had not ever known of Irene Curie. She is the daughter of Pierre and Marie Curie, and her and her husband were the second set of husband-wife pairs to earn a Nobel Peace Prize. The first husband-wife pair were Pierre and Marie. Enrico Fermi is the name that you may be familiar with. Fermi expanded on what Irene and her husband Frederick were doing. Fermi found a much greater variety of radionuclides were formed when various atoms were bombarded with neutrons instead of protons. Fermi figured out that atoms could be split by firing neutrons into the nucleus of an atom. Now we're cooking with gas. Come on, nuclear power. Okay, continuing that down that line of reason. A fellow by the name of Otto Hahn and another guy by the name of Fritz Strassmann fired neutrons into uranium and were surprised to find much lighter elements remaining, like barium, for instance. Hahn and Fritz, Lise Meitner, Niels Bohr, Otto R. Frisch, these are the brainiacs of brainiacs, and they got together to go over the outcomes of these experiments. Lise Meitner, and Frisch concluded that the barium and other much lighter, in other words, elements with much fewer protons, that other much lighter materials were found were the outcome of the uranium nucleus actually splitting. Meitner added the atomic masses of the lighter materials, which became known as fission products, and determined that the atomic masses did not total that of the original uranium mass. Okay, here comes the world-known famous equation. She applied Albert Einstein's theory and was able to show that the lost mass in the reactions had been changed to energy. Here's where Einstein's theory of relativity comes into play. E equals mc squared. Energy is equal to the mass times the speed of light squared. What this is saying is that the amount of energy that would be generated if a certain amount of mass were completely converted would be equal to the amount of mass multiplied by the speed of light and then again multiplied by the speed of light. This is a mind-boggling, brain-scrambling thing to understand, at least for me, from the standpoint of the amount of energy generated and the simplicity of the formula. I am no expert on relativity, but I can see myself going off on a tangent, but I'm going to stay on topic here. Much of the electricity around the globe is generated by burning coal and natural gas. When the atoms of these fossil fuels are burned, the amount of energy that is released is based on the electrons that are orbiting around the nucleus, having their bonds broken, and there is an amount of energy released that is associated with the breaking of those bonds. When we have a campfire and we put a bunch of wood in the fire, 
and it burns, it releases light, it releases heat. And when the fire's all out and you look at it, all you've got is burned wood. You don't have any other kind of elements. This is because that fire operates at the chemical level. Now, let's get back to this. When we generate electricity in a nuclear reactor, or if a nuclear weapon is detonated, what we are seeing is the energy that is released from within the atom, from inside that nucleus. This is the breaking of the bonds that are so closely and strongly held because of which force? Yeah, if you were thinking strong nuclear force, you'd be correct. This is the breaking of the bonds that are so closely and strongly held because of those strong nuclear force bonds that we talked about earlier in this episode. Let's zoom into the nucleus of a uranium-235 atom. Let's look at it as though we were in an incredible shrinking machine. We're getting smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller. The uranium-235 atom is able to be discerned. The smaller and smaller we get, we can see the cloud of electrons orbiting the uranium-235 atom. As we get smaller yet, we can go inside that cloud, and now the nucleus comes into view. That uranium-235 nucleus, if we could get up inside it, we would see that it was made up of 92 protons and 143 neutrons, all held together, and, to a certain extent, being pushed apart by the electromagnetic force, all being held together by that strong nuclear force, which is much stronger than the electromagnetic force, with a little bit of repulsion from those positively charged protons repelling each other. Now, let's imagine that we're back in 1935 in a laboratory, and Enrico Fermi is experimenting. We will need to stand off to the side because Fermi is about to shoot a neutron at the very uranium-235 atom that we are looking at. And it comes. It's a direct hit. We would then see that nucleus that contains 92 protons and 143 neutrons absorb that incoming neutron shot by Fermi. The nucleus rapidly expands. We're going to step back just a little bit to get out of its way. That nucleus rapidly expands and flows outward with two lobes forming as though it were a giant water balloon and someone pinched it in the middle, forcing half the water to go into one bulge and half the water to go into the other side. These two lobes that formed from the uranium-235 atom begin to wobble. The stresses on that nucleus are huge. The intensity of the wobbling increases until, until the strong nuclear forces are unable to keep the nucleus together. Because remember, very, very strong, iron fist, but only have a very short reach. The nuclear force is unable to keep that nucleus together and it splits. The breaking of those bonds, those bonds held together with that strong nuclear force, release a fantastic amount of energy. In technical terms, each nucleus that undergoes this fission will release about 200, here's a new term, about 200 mega electron volts, or MeV. The MeV, or mega electron volt, refers to the kinetic energy gained by a single electron accelerated from rest through the electrical potential difference. Now, there's a lot of words that we'd need to spend a lot of time on to define. 
Let's just leave it at this. Energy from one fission, you could say, well, that's not very much. But if you consider, and you must, the fact that the amount of energy produced by splitting that one nucleus is from such a small, infinitesimally small amount of mass on such a sub-microscopic level, and then the nuclear chain reaction that is maintained in a, quote, critical reaction, there would be just so many of these going on, it is truly a massive energy release. So we're standing there, we're super tiny, we're looking at that uranium-235 atom, in comes that neutron that Fermi just shot at it, the neutron splits. It releases the energy. What kind of energy? The simple answer to that question is heat and radiation in the form of photons and particles. The splitting of this nucleus is called fission. We've split the atom. The particles that come out of the split of this nucleus are called fission products. Let's go back to our previous example from the previous episode. If I have a glass mixing bowl, a drinking glass, and a vase, they're all made out of glass, and I drop them on the floor, what do we have? We've got a bunch of broken glass. We no longer have that vase or that drinking glass or that mixing bowl. Here we go. We've just split that uranium-235, and we have a bunch of particles coming out. Those fission products are smaller atoms, plus one or more neutrons also come out. Statistically speaking, the average fission of uranium-235 atom from a thermal neutron, which basically means that that neutron only has a certain amount of energy, so it's only at a certain speed. That reaction will produce an average of 2.43 neutrons. We're just going to say between 2 and 3 neutrons. Now here's the deal with these nuclear reactions. First off, uranium-235 splits and sends off between 2 and 3 neutrons. These are called prompt neutrons. Next, when that uranium-235 split, there were generally speaking two fission products, smaller nuclei that went off in different directions, and they will oftentimes emit neutrons of their own. These are called delayed neutrons because it takes a bit more time for them to be released compared to prompt neutrons. Those 2.43 neutrons go on to typically do one of three things. Cause new fission reactions, which is not the norm because they have so much energy. Get captured by another nucleus, but not cause fission. Or escape the reactor core altogether. We do need to take a minute to discuss something. There have always been two sources of irritation for me when it comes to movies and television shows. Okay, I'm getting out the soapbox and I admit it. The first one has nothing to do with this episode, but I'll just describe it. The movies and television always associate the color green with nuclear waste. No, that's simply not true. Especially when there are way more chemical reactions that will cause the color green. Nuclear does not cause green. I digress. The second and more predominant irritation that I have with movies and television is that somehow the term, the reactor is critical, always has a negative connotation. I get it. If we're talking about a medical situation and the patient is in critical condition, not a good thing. I get it. If we're talking about other things, when conditions are critical, it is not a good thing. 
But if we're going to be talking about nuclear reactions, reactors, physics, etc., we should be using the correct terminology. There are three terms in nuclear physics when we're describing the operating condition of a nuclear reactor. The first one is subcritical, the second one is critical, and the third one is supercritical. When the reactor is subcritical, it means that the power output of the reactor is going down. Power is reducing because there are not enough incoming neutrons available to maintain the same rate of fission or chain reaction, so that uranium-235 nucleus that we were standing by when Fermi shot that neutron at it, it broke into two lobes, it had enough energy in it, it caused it to split, and it released two fission fragments, or smaller atoms, and 2.43 neutrons. Those 2.43 neutrons, again, it's a statistical average of between two and three neutrons, will go on to cause other reactions. But if conditions are such that we don't have those 2.43 neutrons available to go on and cause other fissions, then we can say we are subcritical and reactor power will be going down. There are some fission reactions going on, but not enough to be self-sustaining. This could be compared to the birth rate of a country over a period of time being less than the death rate. It would be said that the population of that country and we're, we're excluding immigration and emigration, that the population of that country was going down. If this went on for too long, the population of the country would be insufficient to run things in the country. At a certain point, our reactor would be said to be shut down. Being shut down could be compared to having a campfire that you were either trying to start new or restart after a long night of not adding wood to it. If that campfire is too cold, it will smolder. It'll make a bunch of light white smoke, but it's not going to create a lot of flame unless you do certain things to it. If you add some form of heat, a match, propane torch, whatever it was, the wood would burn. But when you remove that external source of heat, the fire would go back out and only smolder. That is an analogy for a shutdown subcritical reactor. When, quote, the reactor is critical, unquote, it means that the power output of the reactor is level. It's not going up and it's not going down. It means that the fission rate within the core is sufficient that the number of neutrons being released from the splitting of the neutrons is sufficient for the core to maintain whatever reactor power it is at. The third condition is... The reactor is supercritical, unquote. I haven't heard this one in the movies. Maybe it is. I just haven't noticed it, and I'm not sure why. They could really take advantage of that one. When the reactor is supercritical, it's likely an okay thing. It simply means that the reactor power is increasing. There are many factors that come into play here, and I'm not going to get into them, but I'll say that if the reactor power is within normal operating parameters, most easily said that the reactor power is less than 100% rated power and the rate of increase in the reactor power is not excessive, then we're fine. So to recap, the reactor can be subcritical, critical, or supercritical. And those could be all fine things. Now, the reactor being supercritical could be a bad thing. 
because it's super critical and reactor power is rising at such a rate that it's going to exceed 100% reactive power, then we might have a problem. For those who are knowledgeable in the ways of reactor physics, I am purposefully not going too deeply into the matter of delayed neutrons versus prompt neutrons in the discussion, but I will bring it up later in the discussion about nuclear weapons. Our next step is to talk about how a commercial nuclear power generating station works. The goal with any type of generating station, no matter what type of fuel, could be natural gas, could be coal, could be nuclear, the goal is to convert energy from one form to another more desirable form. Here's the rub. When converting from one form of energy to another, there are always losses. There is no such thing, maybe you've heard this, there is no such thing as a perpetual motion machine. There are always losses, and that's due to the forces that we face inside our universe. With a nuclear generating station, we take fuel, in this case, fissionable material. What kind? Well, that depends. And if we covered all of the variations, two things would happen. First, we'd quickly exceed the areas of my knowledge and understanding. Second, we'd be here for a very, very long time and I'd probably put most of you to sleep. What that means is that we will talk about reactor plants that uranium, typically 3-5% to enriched uranium in uranium-235 is used. This is important because uranium-238 does not fission. And again, it goes back to our other discussion from the previous episode. Uranium-238 is most abundant. Uranium-235 is what we need for fissioning. So how do we get the uranium-235? Well, we run it through an enriching process. Uranium that is mined is naturally 99.3% uranium-238 and only 0.7% uranium-235. The mined uranium is enriched from the naturally occurring percentage of 0.7% to between 3 and 5% for commercial nuclear plants. The enrichment process is a fascinating one, but outside the scope of this discussion, unfortunately. In an operating reactor, we will say that it is enriched uniformly to, let's say, 4%. That leaves the rest of the 96% as uranium-238, which is not fissionable, that is, until it's converted. When uranium-238 gets hit with a neutron from one of the other fission releases, remember those 2.43 neutrons, that neutron is absorbed by the uranium-238 and it becomes uranium-239. So that neutron hit the nucleus, was absorbed by it. I need to stay on track here because this discussion is getting into decay chains and I can absolutely nerd out on decay chain subject. Now, We just mentioned uranium-239. Uranium-239 will undergo something called beta decay. Don't worry about it. It's just a form of decay. But when it undergoes that beta decay, it will turn into a different element called neptunium-239. Neptunium-239 has 93 protons, whereas you'll probably recall that uranium has 92 protons. This neptunium-239 will also undergo something called beta decay. And then it turns into plutonium-239, which is very fissionable, and for this purpose, a very viable fuel. So, the type of fuel is one differentiator between and amongst 
different types of nuclear generating stations. There are other fuels that I'm not well versed in, things like MOX fuel and mixed oxide fuel, which is a blend of plutonium and natural or depleted uranium. There's another type of fuel used largely in research reactors at universities called Triga fuel, training research isotopes general atomics, just the way they classified it. It was a cool acronym, so I guess that's what they called it. There are many kinds, even liquid fuel reactors that offer significant safety advantages. So that covers all the types of fuels that I'm going to mention, and there are others. We get another differentiator in the type of nuclear power plants is the type of coolant that is used. In this discussion, I am only qualified to intelligently discuss light water reactors. So other than mentioning that there are heavy water reactors, sodium-cooled reactors, there are molten salt reactors. The U.S. government at one point years ago toyed with the idea of having an air-cooled reactor that worked as a ramjet to power an aircraft that could fly for years at a time without being refueled. Think about it. A nuclear-powered aircraft. Very cool story. Maybe time for another episode, but not here. In this discussion, so far we're talking about a reactor plant that uses 3-5% to enriched uranium and is cooled with water. The next differentiator of the type of reactor plant we're talking about is how is the energy of the nuclear reactions transferred to some other useful form of energy? Maybe you're familiar with these classifications of pressurized water reactor and boiling water reactor. PWR for pressurized water reactor and BWR for boiling water reactor. I've worked on both of them. In fact, my Navy nuclear career were all pressurized water reactors. And then um, my commercial nuclear power career, my very first PWR was Palo Verde Nuclear Generating Station. And my very first boiling water reactor was Brunswick Nuclear Plant. First, we're going to tackle the pressurized water reactor. In the pressurized water reactor plant, known as a PWR like I've mentioned, primary coolant circulates through the reactor. It's heated up based on all those nuclear reactions. It's heated up and then it travels through tubes inside something called a steam generator. When it does this, the primary coolant gives up its heat to water on the other side of those tubes. And these two sets of waters do not mix. The water that goes through the reactor is also at a much higher pressure. So as it gets heated up in the reactor and it goes through the tubes, it heats up the water on the other side of the tubes and in turn, it cools down. So it transfers that energy. After transferring this heat energy, it goes through a reactor coolant pump, which pushes it back through the reactor to get heated up again and it starts the process all over again. A few very major things just happened here. The reactor heated the primary coolant, and the primary coolant heated water on the secondary side of the steam generator, or on the other side of those tubes. The primary water is cooled down, and it gets pushed back through the reactor to heat it up again. Things are going to get a little complicated here for just a minute. The reactor fuel has fissions going on, and is releasing energy in the form of heat and radiation. The release of energy inside the reactor is what creates the heat. And that is a good thing. That is the first major step in generating electricity that we desire. When the reactor is generating the heat, it is important that it does not get too hot. 
We're speaking about the fuel assemblies. We have not talked about those yet, but we will in a bit. If the fuel assemblies are unable to be kept cool, reactor core damage will be the result. To prevent reactor fuel from getting too hot, we use the primary coolant to remove the heat so the coolant does two things, which is really only one and the same thing. It keeps the reactor fuel temperatures in a range that will prevent damage, and it transfers that heat over to the steam generator. Let's talk about that steam generator. Inside the tubes, we have very hot water that is being heated by the reactor. The pressure inside the reactor and the rest of the primary plant is very high, and that prevents any boiling from occurring in the primary. I'm leaving out the discussion of what happens in the pressurizer for simplicity's sake, if you know your way around a pressurized water reactor. Water boiling inside a pressurized water reactor is a very bad thing because it prevents heat from being carried away from the fuel. It prevents uniform cooling of the reactor fuel, which can result in reactor core damage. On the opposite side of those tubes in the steam generator, we call it the secondary water system. It is at a lower pressure and it is allowed to boil. That is intentional. If you've lived in a home that has radiators to warm the house, a boiler down probably in the basement boils water and that steam travels through pipes to a large metal radiator in the room. The steam heats the metal of the radiator and the metal of the radiator transfers the heat to the room. This could sort of be compared to a steam generator. The air in the room being warmed to a comfortable temperature is the goal of the radiator. In the steam generator, boiling water to steam is the desired outcome. The steam that is created in the steam generator is called the secondary side like I mentioned. This steam is allowed to go through piping to a turbine and the energy in the steam is released in the turbine causing the turbine to rotate. This rotation of the turbine turns a generator and that generator creates electricity. That is a very basic description of a pressurized water reactor plant. Wow, this episode is going long. We are going to have to pick this up in our next episode. As I mentioned at the beginning of this episode, I am asking you to reach out to me if you'd like to be a guest on a future episode of this podcast regarding this or any other topic. Please feel free. You can ask questions about the content we've covered so far, or if you're knowledgeable on the subject, I welcome you to add to what I've said or even oppose what I've said. I'm open to a good discussion. I would love to have you share your knowledge thoughts, feelings, beliefs, opinions, and even your fears, if you have them about nuclear power. This has been an episode of the Ton of Questions podcast. I hope you've enjoyed our time together. If you have any feedback, I'd love to hear it. Head on over to www.tonofquestions.com. Leave me a speak pipe message to share your thoughts. It's as simple as leaving a voicemail. Thanks for listening and come back soon.